This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Brexit is something which is going to deliver the biggest blow to working class living standards for a generation. There's talk of 8% being lost from gross domestic products if Britain leaves the European Union with no deal. And no deal is currently a bit agreed, I mean, so that could well happen. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. About a week ago, Yoni Applebaum wrote a very compelling cover story for The Atlantic called The Case for Impeachment. In it, he makes three basic arguments for why we should impeach Donald Trump. The first is the moral case. I fully agree with that case. We don't need to go back over it here. The second is the legal case. Yoni essentially argues that you don't have to have broken any obvious laws in order to be removed from office. It is enough that you have consistently attacked liberal democracy in a way that is concerning. I can't evaluate the legal argument. I'm not a lawyer, but it seemed quite persuasive to me as well. The third argument that Yoni made was strategic. He said that impeaching Trump would have all kinds of good consequences. It would make it harder for Trump to control the narrative. It would distract the White House so much that it would become much more difficult for him to actually change the country in the ways he is trying to at the moment. And it might even turn public opinion against Trump. Well, it's on this most important, the strategic ground that I disagree with Yoni. And that has inspired me to write a response in my column here on Slate called The Case Against Impeaching Trump. There's two particular strategic concerns that drove me to that conclusion. The first is about the 2020 elections. I don't think anybody can quite predict how impeachment would play out. I don't think any of us exactly know what it would look like. But there's a very real risk that Trump, who's a master troller after all, would come out strengthened. So is it in our interest to roll the dice? That depends on your baseline. Since I think that it's quite likely that Democrats will be able to get Trump out of office in 2020, since Trump's approval ratings are very low and have consistently been low since Democrats have just won a big victory in the midterm, since they have all kinds of candidates who might make for quite compelling competitors to him in the 2020 election. I think that rolling the dice on a move that will completely upend the lay of the land is not in the interest of Trump's opponents at the moment. But the second, the long-term strategic argument is the most important in my mind. I feel strongly that we are not just fighting against Donald Trump, we're fighting against Trumpism. We don't just want to make sure that he leaves the office in 2020, we want to make sure that the forces of authoritarian populism don't take over in the United States 
over the next two or three decades. Well, even in the unlikely case that impeachment worked, that 67 senators voted against Trump, we would be creating a martyr. And I fear we would be making it more likely that Trump would remain in control of a Republican party. The best path towards a saner political system, a more harmonious multi-ethnic society, is one in which Donald Trump runs for re-election in 2020 and wins a grand total of four states. That's a narrow path. It won't be easy to get there. But it is a vision for how we might be able to get rid of Donald Trump and to cure the country of Trumpism. Impeachment doesn't seem to be following any such theory of change. So by all means, the House should urgently start to investigate Donald Trump. It should demand his tax returns. It should ask him to testify. And perhaps the Mueller investigation will find things, perhaps these hearings will surface things which are so blatantly criminal, which are so likely to move public opinion that the strategic case for Trump starts to match the moral one. Until then, I counsel patience. For this episode of The Good Fight, I spoke with James Bloodworth. James is a British journalist, a proud left-winger who spent six months uh, working undercover in low-wage Britain for his book, Hired, Six Months Undercover in Low-Wage Britain. But James also is somebody who, as you will see, is very thoughtful about the kind of economic reforms we need, a skeptic of certain forms of left-wing populism, and of course, having a conversation about Britain and populism at the moment, we also ended up speaking quite a bit at the end of our conversation about Brexit, how to get out of it, and most importantly, what Britain is going to look like once the Brexit debate is settled in one way or another. Welcome to the podcast, James. Yeah, thank you for having me on. So I did a Twitter poll of my listeners recently and asked them what they wanted more of. And one of the things they wanted more of is economic policy. And another thing we wanted more of is hearing about populism around the world and different political developments in different parts of the world. So I think we can cover both of those, actually, in this conversation. You spend a good amount of time undercover as a entry-level worker at Amazon in Britain. Why did you do that and what did you find there? Yeah, so in 2016, I spent six months working in various companies in the UK. And the aim was really to, if we go back, if we cast our minds back to late 2015, early 2016, it seems a long time ago now. So, I mean, Brexit wasn't on the cards in the UK. Donald Trump wasn't the president in the United States. And the narrative in the news media in the UK at the time was very much that Britain was well on the road to recovery, well on the road to normality, if you like, after the 2008 recession. So there were a record number of people in work. Economic growth was fairly robust. So on the surface, things seemed quite rosy, if you like. But then if you looked behind the you know, Office of National Statistics figures that would come out every month, and you would see a picture that was much more negative. You would see a picture of an economy that was changing quite rapidly and in which 
if you were at the low end of the economy, so if you were a, a worker on a, on the minimum wage, your terms and conditions were often very different to what they'd been before the recession. So you had a, a rise in what's been called precarity, so precarious hmm. work, things like zero guaranteed hours. And, and there's the sort of a new coinage, right, which is now already relatively common, but which was still more fresh and more recent two years ago, the idea of a precariat, right? Well, it was the author Guy Standing who coined the, the term precariat. I was working among those people. And there was a big rise in, you know, number of people on zero hours contracts and also this thing called the gig economy. What's, what's a zero hour contract for people who are not from Britain? So it's where you have no guaranteed hours each week. So you're basically on call at all times. You usually can't work for another firm and the company can give you five hours one week or 35 hours the next week. It's mm. flexibility for some, but also uncertainty for others. And there was also the rise of what's been called the gig economy. So this is work through... Uh, mobile phone apps. So for companies like Uber, Deliveroo, essentially where linking up people who can provide a service with customers who want that service, you're essentially working for a company, but the relationship had changed contractually. So as the law saw it, you were self-employed, even though you were usually being controlled by one of these companies, but you wouldn't receive holiday pay, sick pay, or a minimum wage in the UK, which you'd received before. So the world of work had changed a great deal for those at the bottom end of the labor market. And so basically what you saw is these competing narratives. On the one hand, economic growth is back. We are close to full employment. We have come through the deep recession and delivered to tell the tale and things are essentially getting better. And then on the other hand, you saw all of those signs that there's this rise in what in Britain is called the zero-hour contracts, there's the rise of a precariat. And actually, perhaps reality is a lot harsher than the headline economic figures point out. And when you went to actually work on those kind of jobs, presumably to figure out which narrative was closer to the truth. Is that right? Yes, essentially. I was a journalist based in London. And much of the work I was doing up to that point was I'd be on my desk, I'd read a report, I'd write a news story on it. I wanted to do a piece of, I suppose, real journalism, not to be too condescending to people who do sit at desks. I wanted to do something which was, I guess, what George Orwell would have described as belly to earth reporting, where I actually embedded myself in the low pay economy for a period of time and could write about it with the color of that world coming through onto the page. So it wasn't just dry statistics. It was actually a portrait which contained human beings, which contained the kind of sights and sounds and feelings of what it's like to actually live on that kind of wage. Because I'd done that when I was younger. I come from a working class background and I wanted to go back a decade later, essentially, and go back as a writer and then communicate that to a middle class audience. So what did you find? I suppose the first thing to say is that what I actually saw really shocked me and surprised me. I'd worked in warehouses before. I worked in all sorts of low paid manual jobs when I was younger. But some of the companies I worked for, there was a real, since the 2008 crash, there had been a real erosion of kind of dignity at work in many workplaces. Some of this went back much longer period. So the disappearance of the trade union movement in the UK, or at least it's shrinking to this kind of rump movement, happened in the 1980s and early 90s. So all of the workplaces I went in to research my book, there were no trade unions in sight. And there was also a lack of, as I said, dignity and self-respect. So at the Amazon warehouse I went in, first of all, you had a situation where people were given disciplinaries by Amazon management for taking days off sick, even with a letter from the doctors, even hmm. phoning in beforehand. Hmm. People being given disciplinaries for taking toilet breaks that were too long. One day I found a bottle of urine on one of the shelves in the Amazon warehouse because it was self-evidently because people were afraid to go to the toilet. I mean, a survey was done of this warehouse, which found 74% of staff afraid to use the toilet because of productivity targets. I mean, it sounds almost 
as if I'm exaggerating to say it, but it was almost a totalitarian environment within the warehouse where you were tightly monitored by these kind of algorithmic devices. All of your movements were tracked and any minor transgression, even taking a day off sick, could potentially see you losing your job through a disciplinary process. And the other background of this, I suppose, was that people really didn't have other options, that uh, the threat of losing their job was very real, even if it was this sort of zero-hour contract, even if it was you know, not a great job in itself, people didn't have a sense that there's other alternatives available to them. No, exactly. I mean, I set out just to write a book about particular jobs initially, but the book became more and more about the communities within which these jobs were located. So it became important to tell the story of the context of, say, the Amazon warehouse. So looking at the town where the Amazon warehouse is, and this town of Rugeley, it's in the West Midlands of the UK. It's a former coal mining town, blue collar town, if you like, where Amazon was the biggest employer in town when I arrived in 2016. Hmm. And it, Amazon had, had, had rocked up in this town uh, five years before, promising all of these jobs. And they were jobs that were supposed to replace the coal mining, industrial jobs, in the power stations, in the manufacturing jobs that had left the town two decades earlier and you know subsequently. So it's the biggest employer in town is essentially only offering temporary jobs with Amazon. You're all starting on nine-month contracts. And if you receive six disciplinary points, you lose your job automatically. And you'd be getting these points, as I said, for everything from taking a day off sick, for taking too long in the toilet, for not hitting extremely high productivity targets, wow, or clocking in five minutes late. So, I mean, if you took six days off sick, you would lose your job. And this is the biggest employer in a kind of proud industrial town. And once you start piecing these things together, once you start seeing this stuff, you start to kind of realize why there's so much anger in some of these towns, similarly in the Rust Belt areas in the US, in the former Collier areas in the UK, where you see there's this residual anger, what's happened to the town over recent decades. And when you talk to people, which presumably you did in whatever short breaks you were allowed or after work, how would they articulate that anger when they told you about what went wrong for them, what they were angry about, what went wrong in their communities? What would they tell you? Were they angry at Amazon? Were they angry at politics? Were they angry at outsiders? What was the main target of the anger and how did they articulate it? It was different within the workplace and outside of the workplace in the town. For example, in the workplace itself, most of my co-workers in entry-level jobs at Amazon were Eastern European migrants. Mm. Most of those were recent entrants to the EU, so most of the, those were Romanians. And there was only three or four English people in an intake of about 50 or 60 people who mm. I worked with when I was there. And the attitude of the Romanian workers was, they knew they were being treated badly. So, I mean, several workers I interviewed compared their treatment to modern slavery, which is, I mean, quite shocking to hear someone actually say that. But they were temporary workers. So most of them had planned to come to the UK to work for three or four months simply because they earned a higher salary than they did in Romania. So they didn't feel hopeless or stuck because they thought, look, this sucks. We're being treated badly. But, you know, I'm here for a few months. I'm still going to make more money than in Romania. I mean, either I'll find some great opportunity here, or if I don't, I'll, I'll go back to Romania, I'll have saved some money, I'll have improved my English. And, and, you know, unhappy as they may be with parts of a deal, they thought of that as a discrete episode in their lives. There was a great deal of resentment on their part. All of the people I interviewed, I can only speak for them, they knew that they were being treated badly. They knew that this wasn't how you should be treated in any workplace, in Romania or in one of the wealthiest countries in the world, in Britain. But it was more, they'd accepted that kind of, situation in that it was a short-term thing. It wasn't somewhere where they were necessarily going to put down roots. And they would then be able to earn some money to take back to Romania to actually do something they wanted to with that money. The attitude amongst locals in the town was very different. People would say, 
who I interviewed, this came up a lot that, you know, there was a great deal of excitement in the town when Amazon first arrived in 2011 because it was going to revitalize the town after 20 years since the pit closed, the biggest employer. 20 years where people had survived, you know, had got by. And Amazon was supposed to bring all these jobs, the biggest company in the world. Everyone pretty much has used Amazon at some point, but this hadn't transpired. So there was a great deal of anger that the promises Amazon had made of all these jobs hadn't really translated into reality because the jobs were being done by Romanians, uh, for better or worse. But there was resentment about this in the town. And also, people would say that I wouldn't get a job at Amazon. They, everyone had a friend who'd worked there or had worked them, them, there themselves in the town. And because the way they treated people, they'd either lose their jobs through some alleged misdemeanor at work, one of the things I've already alluded to, or they just couldn't stand the way they were treated by the management, so they left. And some of this anger was directed at migrants. Some of it was directed at the company. But there was a great deal of anti-establishment sentiment, if you like, whether the, sometimes that was directed at the EU, sometimes Westminster. But there was that kind of stuff we come to become more familiar with since Brexit and Donald Trump, the anti-elitist kind of anti-establishment rhetoric. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. That's fascinating. And I think, you know, sometimes on a good fight, we tend to talk about these questions at a much more abstract level and seeing how a particular community has transformed and the frustrations that people feel I think is crucial context to that conversation. But coming back to that more abstract policy level, what kind of implications did you take away from that? I mean, how do you think, first of all, that in this debate we might usually mischaracterize what's going on and what might even be some of the remedies for that? So I think identity is a very interesting question that came out of the book in some ways. I mean, the book was about material circumstances. The book was about the economy, essentially, is the way I went into it. But I came away with a sense of there's a kind of crisis of working class identity, which derives from obviously the disappearance of traditional industrial jobs in the 80s and 90s and the continued disappearance of those jobs. But it's also what's replaced them and the kind of erosion of labor rights within those jobs and how that contributes to this loss of identity. So, for example, well, I interviewed lots of people who lived in this town of Rugeley, similarly in South Wales, other coalfield areas in the UK. And one former collier, Alex, he said he would see people around the town of Rugeley and he would say, what do you do for work? And they would say, oh, I only work at Amazon. And he said, I'd have never said I only work in the, in the coal mine because hmm. that's what you, you, you know, you're a, you're a collier and you were, you were proud of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I find, that, I find that very interesting in terms of many of these new jobs, there isn't any sense of identity attached to that. And when there is, it's very much a identity, which is as a person, you feel demeaned, you feel like you have no autonomy at work, there's no trade union movement through which to air your grievances. And I think the lack of working class autonomy creates a situation where it then becomes very easy for demagogic politicians to come in and give people someone to blame and someone to follow, if you like. But yeah, that's fascinating to me. In my book, I write about that in terms of a language of ascribed identity and earned identity that mm -hmm. uh, part of the experience of being working class was that you often had earned identity. 
that you know somebody asks you what do you do, you say, well, I'm I'm a miner. You know, I work in this pit, and that's a really important part of my life. Perhaps my dad did the same thing, and the same thing in certain other kinds of blue collar jobs, right? What are you? Well, I'm a foreman. You know, we're building this house over there, and that's something that I can take pride in. And as that identity has gone away, as you are less able to invest pride in and derive identity from a particular job, it's easier to answer the question, who are you, as saying, well, you know, I'm British and I don't like those Romanians coming in. Or in the United States, perhaps I'm white and I don't like all of these ethnic minorities coming in. So you would say from that experience that the attempts to divide economic factors in the rise of populism from the more identity-based ones is false, would you, that they actually interlock in that kind of way? Yeah, I, I definitely think they interlock. I mean, I think there are kind of two threads to it in a way that I'd like to touch on briefly. So on the one hand, you've got the disappearance of a certain type of productive work. So some of that's inevitable. I mean, we don't want to reopen all the coal mines in Britain. It would be pointless to do so. So the question then is, how do you make these new jobs? Not necessarily something you would attach your entire identity to, but we have to create workplaces where people feel like they have some kind of autonomy and I'm going to quote Trotsky here because it's a good phrase, but what used to be called in the labor movement, aisles of proletarian democracy. So within a capitalist society, you have these outlets through which a working class person can express their discontent. And in the past, were these kind of institutions such as trade unions through even things like social clubs, these institutional affiliations, which existed alongside the old working class jobs, Mm. but they do not exist alongside the new working class jobs very often. So you've got this kind of black hole and into that There's that void where, as we said, demagogues can come in and point to the Mexicans, the Romanians or whatever, and attribute the or even, you know, we see conspiracy theories around Jews. So you don't have that labor movement which can explain why the forces of global capitalism are doing this to a community. And so we get this scapegoating instead. You know, obviously, to some extent, this is caused by larger economic forces like globalization and the rise of superstar firms like Amazon. But is it also caused by public policy? And is there public policy responses to it? Is this something that we just have to sit back at and lament? And there's not much we can do to reestablish that kind of pride, to re-engineer workplaces in ways that are more conducive to giving people decent employment or working in this environment and reflecting on it? Did you also come to a set of political conclusions about how we can change the frameworks of the economy in order to ensure that people have work with dignity? There are obviously bigger forces which are, to some extent, inevitable. I think there are powerful forces in British and European and American politics at present which believe that we need to strengthen the ramparts of the nation state again and we need to adopt these more nationalistic, protectionist economic policies to somehow block out the disruption that comes with globalization. I don't really think that's the solution here. I think that there is an inevitability about some of these industrial jobs going. For even for environmental reasons, we don't want some of those jobs to exist anymore. Certainly having lots of coal mining in Britain is not uh, the most obvious progressive course at the moment. No, not at all. And, and I think that's right. But there are obvious policy interventions which successive governments have failed to do, in my opinion. For example, with these Amazon warehouses, which are springing up all over the country at the moment, in many former industrial areas, because those areas are desperate for the jobs, they incentivize Amazon to go there. So what happens is there isn't a proper auditing process when Amazon rocks up in a town and says, we'd like to create these jobs here. There's local authorities heavily subsidizing 
Amazon. So in South Wales, the local authority spent millions of pounds building a warehouse for Amazon, building a road for Amazon. You know, this is the richest country in the world. During a time of austerity, the local authority is paying out all of this money. Then there's no kind of auditing process of what sort of jobs Amazon are going to be creating. So they promised 2000 jobs. Well, what sort of jobs are those going to be? Are those going to provide stability for people in the community? Are they on a par with the jobs they've replaced? So that's on the one hand, but there's also things like improving, you know, there are very restrictive trade union laws in both Britain and the United States, which as someone of the left, I would hope that politicians would actually look at why in the Amazon warehouses here, you have trade union people handing out forms being chased out of the car park by security guards. Hmm. I mean, this is the balance to me is way too far in the direction of protecting these corporations from a process of tepid democratization where people in the workplace can actually form organizations to represent themselves. So that's a great set of lessons. Now, looking at the United Kingdom from the outside, you go back to 2015, early 2016, when you were starting to do this work, it might seem that there is a natural political movement to fight for some of those changes. You had the rise of Jeremy Corbyn, who talks a lot about the poorest in society, those who are exploited by capitalism. Uh, he wants to ensure that we give people a better standard of living and more dignity. And there was tremendous excitement around his leadership in the Labour Party, both in the United Kingdom at the time when he set out to write this book, and among a lot of the left internationally, looking at this from afar, saying he is the man of the future, he can actually help us deal with all of this. I take it you're skeptical of that. Yes, I am. It was a kind of pyrrhic victory for the left in some respects. I mean, on the one hand, I think Jeremy Corbyn, his view of capitalism is a very conspiratorial one. So he talks a lot about it being a rigged system. He talks about capitalism as if it's the 99% and the 1%, as if it's a set of bad people controlling the system rather than it's a set of relations, if you like, material relations. So what, what you mean by that is just, you know, the problem of the world is that there's bad people and the bad people are in control. And if we replace them with good people, then everything is going to be fine. Is that sort of a basic? Yeah, that, that's kind of it. It's, it's almost a moral religious view of things where this is populism as well. There's the in and the out group. And if we just demonize the out group enough, this will solve the problem. A good example of how this can go badly wrong would be Venezuela, which was lauded by people like Jeremy Corbyn under Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro. It's a very left populist strategy of demonizing groups in society. I mean, it worked for a while, but then when you come to power, uh, you actually have to take responsibility at some point. But this is not what tends to happen under populism. It, it simply finds new, more and more groups to demonize. And it lives off of that process of creating these outgroups all the time to blame for its failures. So, um, so, and I think Jeremy Corbyn is in that tradition, which I think is very unhealthy. So I imagine that a lot of listeners to this podcast are going to be skeptical of that and say, look, I know about right-wing populists. I know that right-wing populists blame those Romanians in the warehouse, right? Why is our town not doing better even for Amazon came in? Because all the Romanians took the job, right? I mean, that is a right-wing populist stance. There is this easy scapegoating of minorities, which are either ethnic minorities or foreigners. Aren't left-wing populists immune from that? Aren't they just fighting for the people in the economic sense against the millionaires and billionaires? Isn't that immune from that kind of hatred? And shouldn't we therefore make this principal distinction between left and right-wing populism? You don't seem to draw that principal distinction in what you see certainly in Venezuela, but, but why would you even claim that there's a parallel there with somebody like Jeremy Corbyn? Because I don't, I don't think left populism is fundamentally different from right populism. I think it misunderstands capitalism as well. I don't think capitalism as a system is built on the basis of good and bad people, bad capitalists, good workers who can do no wrong. It's a set of material relations. 
rather than a set of good and evil people. That's not what capitalism is. And I think if you start to see the economic system that's something controlled by a small group of bad people, this lends itself very easily to conspiracy theories around things like the Jews control the banks, etc. And we've seen this creep into the labor movement since the election of Jeremy Corbyn. This kind of conspiratorial view of capitalism as a rigged system which is controlled behind the scenes by a handful of nefarious individuals. That has dark parallels with anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, for example. And I think we've seen that. So what are some of the concrete forms of it's taken and written over the last two or three years? If you log on to any Labour Party forum nowadays, you will see users, Labour Party members, posting conspiracy theories about the Rothschilds. ISIS will commit some atrocity somewhere around the world, and you will immediately on these Labour Party forums see people blaming Mossad for that. That's an example. Any day of the week you can go on there and you'll find this. And it stems, in my view, from this view of the world, which this very simplistic second camp view of the world, which on the one hand sees capitalism as a system controlled by a few nefarious individuals, and on the other hand sees the West as inherently corrupt and wrong, and anything which stands against that as somehow inherently virtuous. I see. So the idea is there's good and bad people. The problem of the world is that the bad people are in control. They're the millionaires and billionaires. They are the United States and its allies. And so anybody who rebels against that is by virtue of that good and virtuous. Yeah, I mean, there's several things going on here at once, obviously, and it's, it's quite hard to distill it into one kind of um, argument. But both of those things are going on. So on the one hand, it's this idea that if you just replace the bad people with good people, the state would be able to solve the problem. And also on a kind of international level, you've got this idea that, which feeds into the anti-Semitism as well, which is that countries like Britain, the United States, Israel are inherently imperialist and, you know, beyond the pale and any movement which fights against them, however regressive in its social attitudes, for example, has something going for it, should be defended to some extent. So is Jeremy Corbyn guilty of that in his own history? Has he supported those kinds of regressive movements just because they opposed Britain or the United States? Yeah, so Jeremy Corbyn is someone who's, he's not someone who was sympathetic to the Soviet Union, unlike some of his closest advisors, but he's someone who was brought up when kind of the politics of third worldism, for want of a better term, was kind of coming to the fore in the 60s and 70s, where People on the left no longer looked necessarily to, you know, Moscow or East Germany for inspiration, but they looked to places like Cuba, uh, Vietnam, and the Palestinian like liberation organization for inspiration. And there was less of a focus on class struggle within rich countries, and the focus instead was on anti-imperialism. So any movement which pointed an AK-47 at the United States or Israel or Britain was seen as a movement because it was fundamentally anti-imperialist, because capitalism in its biggest incarnation in the United States was the greatest evil. Anything which fought against those things should be supported or defended in some way. And so Corbyn, you know, has associated with some fairly unpleasant anti-Semitic characters, for example, in his supposed defense of the Palestinian cause. This is well documented. Corbyn and those around him are very sympathetic to the dictatorship in Cuba and so on and so forth. I mean, Seamus Milne in charge of Corbyn's press operation is someone who's written many uh, columns sympathetic to Vladimir Putin and has defended Vladimir Putin's annexation of Crimea. For example, really on the basis that Putin is seen as standing up to the United States. We used to call this on the left a second campus position. You don't see people in those countries as uh, individuals. You see people in Cuba, for example, as an autonomous group who are represented by the leadership of that country, whether it's democratic or not. Hmm. And so uh, that's a lot of bullets to bite. Uh, I personally am not willing to. I imagine that many listeners to the podcast won't be either. But what about the core of this economic 
program? Isn't there nevertheless something in the economic program that Corbyn stands for that would actually help to solve the kinds of problems that we started the conversation talking about? Or is the economic program that he puts forward uh, actually less imaginative and radical as some outside observers might like to believe? Corbyn's program is less radical than people seem to think. I mean, to go back to what I was saying initially in the podcast about some of the conditions I saw in workplaces in Britain, I mean, I personally believe we need a much more radical economic policy from the left. We need to get trade unions into some of these workplaces. We need to reduce the gap between rich and poor. We have a disgraceful situation where there's been this huge rise in the number of people sleeping on the streets, sleeping rough in the fifth largest economy in the world. You only need to walk through any major city in Britain to see some of the squalor and hopelessness that's really come to the fore well, since 2010, really. So many people are crying out for a more radical economic policy. The problem with Corbyn's position is Corbyn is someone who either tacitly or openly has supported Brexit or supported leaving the European Union for his career. He's equivocating about it now. He refuses to oppose Brexit. Yet Brexit is something which is going to deliver the biggest blow to working class living standards for a generation. There's talk of 8% being lost from gross domestic products if Britain leaves the European Union with no deal. And no deal is currently a bit agreed, I mean. So that could well happen. He wants to bring in a, a raft of protectionist measures, which could conceivably, if other European nations follow suit with policies like this, lead to some kind of 1930s-style trade war. This will impoverish workers rather than improve their living standards. So this, I think, is the thing that's hardest to understand for Americans who have left perhaps also historically, but certainly at the moment, is an internationalist force. And so it's difficult to understand why somebody like Jeremy Corbyn would want to leave the European Union and the ways in which some of his leftism might actually bound up with a pretty nationalist discourse. So what drives that? Why is it that Corbyn and many of the people around him actually abhor the European Union and either overtly or indirectly seek to leave it? Well, I think it goes back to Corbyn is someone who was a follower of Tony Benn, the late Tony Benn, Labour parliamentarian who ran for the deputy leadership of the Labour Party from the left in 1982, I think it was. And he was someone who articulated this alternative economic strategy for the Labour Party in the late 70s. Instead of taking the loan from the IMF, which is what that Labour government of Jim Callaghan did, he believed that Britain should essentially nationalise most of its industry, leave the European economic community and essentially adopt a kind of siege economy that you retreat behind the walls of the nation state, essentially like socialism in one country. So the nation state can create socialism within its borders. So it is an internationalist in the traditional leftist sense. There's always been this debate on the left, whether international socialism or socialism in one country. And this is where Corbyn's view of the European Union is derived from, from this Benite idea that you can retreat within national borders and combat capitalism that way. And I think it's foolish. We brought up Amazon earlier. And the only way you can deal with companies like Amazon, get them to pay their taxes, get them to obey laws around workplace rights, is transnationally. These companies are so big and powerful now that you can only combat that with three blocks of countries. But there is a section of the left, and it's in charge of the Labour Party at the present time, which doesn't see it that way. So that's fascinating, and it explains some of the electoral troubles that the Labour Party has in Britain at the moment. I mean, you have this bizarre situation in which the government 
is in utter shambles. You have a deep split within the Conservative Party. Theresa May has looked like she would lose her job each day for the last two years. And yet the Tory party is actually strongly ahead in the polls of the Labour Party at the moment. So some of those ideas that people had two or three years ago that uh, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour would prove to be incredibly popular aren't true. In fact, in a situation where you would expect the opposition to surge ahead by 10, 12 points in the polls, they are still behind. What is the best case scenario now for Brexit and for people who are listening to it from the outside, who are probably tired of the confusion of it that's reigned for three years now? How is it that we've gotten to this impasse? Why is it that two years after the United Kingdom triggered Article 50, uh, started to uh, announce its intention to leave the European Union, we are coming up to that deadline and we still don't know what is going on? One of the reasons Jeremy Corbyn did well, just a slight detour, one of the reasons he did well in the 2017 general election here was because at that time it was still possible for him to retain that ambiguity over Labour's stance on Brexit. Now we are less than two months away from when Britain is going to leave the European Union. So voters expect Labour to have a clear position on it. And it's confusing because Jeremy Corbyn said recently that he can't oppose Brexit, that the Labour Party is not going to oppose Brexit. And so in that respect, people are down to voting Labour on the basis that Brexit's going to be less bad under Labour than it will be under the Tories. And Brexit just seems like it's going to be a huge car crash anyway. So this isn't something that's particularly inspiring for a swing voters who's maybe voted Remain to support the Labour Party. No one knows what Brexit's going to, to look like. I think that's the best argument for having another referendum because no one actually knows what Brexit's going to entail. No one knew what it was going to entail when we voted on it in 2016. And the closer we get to the deadline, the more the whole thing looks like it was built on a pack of lies and looks like it's going to entail this huge mess. What I'm amazed by in the discussion in Britain is two things. The first is that the vote was relatively close. It was 52% to 48%. And so you would think that there would need to be a political space that represents the 48%, that actually speaks for their worldview and interests. But because of this weird accident in which, uh, ironically, we had the head of a conservative party become somebody who had been a Remainer, who had been in favor of staying in the European Union, but who for strategic and political reasons ended up driving a pretty hardline leave policy as prime minister because that was the only way in which she was realistically going to keep her job, Theresa May. At the same time, you had a leader of a Labour Party who was nominally pro-Remain, but who everybody uh, around him knows is a deep opponent of the European Union and who was not actually willing to try and ensure, for example, that Britain would at least stay in the single market. And so as a result, it seems to me from the outside, you've had this two-year period in which the idea of what it means to leave the European Union has started to radicalize. Where in the run-up to the referendum in 2016, most of the campaigners for leave said, of course we'll stay in the single market, of course we'll try and stay as close as possible to Europe. And at this point, because nobody was framing the argument, nobody was speaking up for the interests of the 48%, it has become an obvious assumption of British politics that anything short of leaving the single market, or perhaps even an extreme hard Brexit without any real trade deal, would be a betrayal of what 52% of people voted for which is sort of peculiar. I wonder for what the best case scenario now is. And as we're recording this, this is changing every minute, so hopefully it won't have changed too much by the time you listen to this. But as we're recording it, three very, very different options are still 
on the table. One of which is a hard Brexit, a no-deal Brexit, which essentially means that Britain crashes out of the European Union without a real trade deal with the set of countries with which it does most of its trade and all kinds of short-term disruptions to life in Britain likely to follow. The second is this complicated deal that Theresa May has negotiated in which there would be an end of freedom of movement, an end of British citizens being able to work anywhere in Europe and European citizens being able to work anywhere in Britain. There would be some free trade, especially on goods, but no real free trade on services. And then there's a third option of having a new referendum with a set of choices which hasn't been determined yet, which might reopen a possibility of Britain staying in the European Union. Which of those three scenarios do you think is most appealing, makes the most sense at the moment? Personally, I mean, the most appealing scenario for me is another referendum. I think it's unlikely, however, I think the most likely scenario to transpire will be Theresa May's deal, simply because I think the likelihood of the other two, I mean, on the one hand, the prospect of no deal I think we'll frighten MPs into voting for any kind of deal because it's better than the potential for a... I mean, the economic warnings are starting to come out now. We've heard about the potential 8% loss of GDP if there's no deal. I think there'll be more grave warnings. Businesses threatening to leave and take jobs with them as we get closer if no deal has been agreed. But also, there won't be, I don't think, another referendum simply because you don't have the leader of the main opposition party supportive of that. So the only main political party which supports another referendum are the Liberal Democrats, which have been reduced to a to a tiny rump since they left coalition in 2015. So the most likely scenario is Theresa May's deal. And just to kind of finish that point, this kind of demonstrates how we see lots of extreme movements rising to prominence in politics around the world. And in the UK, politics is being driven by the extremes to some extent, even if they're not necessarily in power or close to power. So Theresa May is someone who was a Remainer, but then came out with these very strong statements. She made her rod for her own back when she became leader of the Conservative Party. She made these very strong pro-leave statements because she has a small minority in Parliament now. She's in hock to her backbenchers who are happy to crash out of the European Union with no deal. And in the Labour Party, the Labour Party is led by someone who's always been a fairly hardline Eurosceptic, who also doesn't want a, another referendum and who sees Britain crashing out of the European Union as this opportunity to usher in this 1970s style model of socialism to the UK. So we're in we're in a bit of a mess. We're in a bit of a mess, really, but at least we can laugh about it now because we've still got two months, so maybe. <laughs> <laughs> laugh for two months before... You know, all your food runs out. As we're licked by the flames, yeah, we can, we can still laugh about it. <laughs> so I'm interested in one thing, which is that, you know, political scientists tend to explain most things by differences between political institutions. And I have grown a little skeptical of that. I'm struck by the fact that for the political institutions of, for example, Great Britain and the United States are very, very different. Um, and populism ends up taking a pretty different form in each. In the end, you still see some form of populism breakthrough in all of those countries. But it is striking that Britain seems to have the absence of certain forms of populism which are taking over in other countries. So for one, Theresa May, despite some use of populist rhetoric, I think is not on the whole, populist politician. Certainly, you don't have the rise of an independent populist party in the United Kingdom. You had that in the form of the UK independence party, UKIP, for a little while, but it has now sunk, at least for the moment, into electoral insignificance because of the Brexit referendum. And though you certainly have 
a very hardline immigration policy and some rather nasty rhetoric around it, you don't quite have the open xenophobia and racism in mainstream politics that you see in something like the Italian League Party, for example, or even in the form, frankly, of Donald Trump in the United States. So here's a big question. Do you think that throwing a big bone, even if a very destructive one, to the part of a population that's just angry, that just wants to stick it to the elites, that wants to show that we have to have a win for once and we're not going to play by your rules, will help in the long run to calm political passions in Britain and allow the country to get through this turbulent period in a more stable way? Or do you think that once all of the energy and all of the raw anger that's taken up by the Brexit debate at the moment is resolved, whether it is through a hard Brexit, whether it is through May's deal, whether it is through another referendum and suddenly Britain remains in the European Union, do you think that energy is going to flow back into all of those kinds of spaces and you'll suddenly get a lot more xenophobia, perhaps the rise of a new populist party and so on in Britain over the next few years? In other words, is whatever resolution we're going to find to Brexit the capstone to a turbulent period in British politics or is it actually uh, the opening salvo in a larger transformation. Okay, so, I mean, I'm not a Marxist, but I tend to look at this through a materialist lens. So it very much depends on what outcome we get, because I think if we have a Brexit where, you know, there was a slight majority voted for Brexit, Theresa May, I think, is looking at this to some extent this way. If we give the people what they want, then the, the kind of populist tide will recede, if you like. I think the problem with that is that it fails any kind of materialist analysis of the situation. Whatever Brexit we have is likely to damage living standards in Britain. If we have a hard Brexit, it's likely to significantly damage living standards in this country. And as someone who looks at these things, you know, not dogmatically through a material lens, but as someone who looks at these things through the lens of the economy in this country, if you have a situation where people are losing their jobs, where industries are relocating to mainland Europe, where people are becoming, you know, 8% poorer in the space of a single year, that'd be much easier, I think, for a populism based on this demagogic demonization of people like migrants of the European Union to make hay, to get a hearing, because people will be looking around and looking at what's happened to their communities, and they'll be looking for someone to blame. So I think that one wouldn't want to say it's all about the economy, but that very much does play into this kind of populism where scapegoats are required to kind of pacify different groups of people. James, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of A Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying this podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends all about it. Share it on Facebook or Twitter. Compose a theme song for The Good Fight and perform it with your marching band. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newamerica.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.